If you're listening at home, you're at a place where you have internet access, don't try this if you're driving. I want you to find Old Town Road, the remix, with Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus, and sync that up as we get set to do the intro here. If it weren't for copyrights and what have you, I'd love to be playing that as my music bed. I'd love to have that under my intro because we got some horse talk coming up. Old Town Road, Kentucky Derby, it's perfect. It's a perfect song for this time of the year. In about 15 minutes, Barry Abrams, ESPN horse racing analyst, will join me. We will recap the Kentucky Derby, answer a few questions regarding the betting aspect of it all, and we'll preview Preakness coming up in just 12 days. Beyond that, we've got the NBA and NHL playoffs to break down. I'll make the case why the Dolphins were... One of two perfect destinations for Josh Rosen. And of course, breaking news at the high school basketball level emerging a couple of hours ago. We're getting to all that. Plus, why the XFL just bolstered its odds of making it as a successful pro sports league. All of that is coming up over the course of the next hour here on ESPN-UP. The sports pen, Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me. Congratulations to all who graduated from Northern Michigan University over the weekend. Hats off to the grads. Glad to have that behind you. I tell you what, we start in the NBA in a wild weekend. Yesterday, a couple of must-wins. And really, everything's going to be a must-win from here on out. The Raptors do what they needed to. They get the win 101-96, evening that series of two games apiece. A monster day from Kawhi Leonard, 39 points, 14 rebounds. He led five players in double figures. He had a clutch three-pointer with 61 seconds left in the game. And Kawhi showing why he's one of the best finishers in all of basketball. And I said a few weeks ago that this Eastern Conference championship, can we call it a championship between these last four teams? It's probably going to come down to a last couple of possessions. And who has the best finisher is going to matter so much. Kawhi Leonard was that yesterday. By comparison, Joel Embiid didn't have all that great of a day. He only had four shots in the first 32 minutes of the game. And then the fourth quarter, he missed three straight free throws at one point. That's the top dog for Philadelphia. Some can argue Jimmy Butler is. They're better when Jimmy Butler is the top dog. But Joel Embiid needs to be that guy. His upside is better than Jimmy Butler's. Joel Embiid needs to be better than he was yesterday if Philadelphia wants to win this series. I don't think Philly's going to win the Eastern Conference title just for that reason. Nobody really wants to be a leader night in and night out for this team. Ben Simmons, really, outside of that one game where Dudley from the Nets, remember that? When he had that beef with Dudley, he had a really good game three against the Nets when he was trying to prove a point. And outside of that, Ben Simmons has really underwhelmed this series. And while Jimmy Butler has been consistently good for them, you need more. You can be a good team with two top dogs, but if your goal is the NBA Finals to win the Eastern Conference... You're not going to get it done with just Embiid and just Jimmy Butler. Tobias Harris had 16 points yesterday, but he was not efficient. 7 of 23, 2 of 13 from the three-point arc. It's not going to get it done. So again, the series is tied two games apiece. They shift back to Toronto for Game 5 tomorrow night. Tell you what, I still think the Raptors are going to win this series. and might go 7, but 2 of the last 3 north of the border? And the kind of team Toronto has, having the best finisher on the floor? It's going to beat Philadelphia. I don't see Philly winning this series. They don't have enough guys playing consistently at a high level night in and night out. Some nights, Tobias Harris is good. Once in this postseason, Ben Simmons has been exceptional. It's going to take more than Embiid, who wasn't at his best yesterday, 
and Jimmy Butler. The upside for Toronto is greater than Philadelphia's. Kawhi Leonard showed why he is one of the best finishers in the game, not just the Eastern Conference yesterday. Even Pascal Siakam's had a wonderful postseason. He's been almost the third option for Toronto. It's been Leonard, Lowry, arguably Siakam. So now the question, not only for Toronto fans, is what is it going to take to win this series? What is it going to take to win the Eastern Conference? But how much is going to be enough to make Kawhi want to re-sign this offseason? They upgraded, getting Kawhi for DeMar DeRozan. They upgraded. But will it be enough to make Kawhi Leonard want to stay? If they get bounced this round, if they get bounced in the conference semifinals for the third straight year, Kawhi's not coming back. That's not appealing to him to want to stay. And he's shown how valuable he is. How valuable he would be to any team this offseason. He is going to get paid this offseason. He's raising his stock immensely. Someone is going to shell out big money to get this guy on their team because of what he's done for Toronto this season, what he's done over the course of his career. What he's doing this postseason has been especially impressive. Yesterday was a prime example of it. And you know what? He's been linked to LeBron and the Lakers. I don't think he's going there. I could see him going to the Los Angeles Clippers before I could see him going to the Lakers. All the talk about the New York Knicks offseason revolves around Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, drafting Zion Williamson. What about Kawhi Leonard? Who says Kawhi Leonard could not be a New York Knick next season? Or who says he couldn't flourish as the superstar that the New York Knicks have been waiting for? Let me answer my own question. It's probably Kawhi Leonard. If there's anybody who says Kawhi Leonard can't be a New York Knick, it's probably Kawhi Leonard. Why wouldn't he want to stay with Toronto? Because they're not a team that shows they can get by the conference semifinals. At least they haven't been yet. He wants to win. Winning is important to him. He's shown that. Is it more important than money? We'll wait to see because the money is going to be offered to him this summer when he hits free agency. But does he want to keep winning 58 to 60 games every regular season like he is in Toronto? Or does he want to go to New York where he might get paid, but he's going to win maybe 20th season? No team in the Eastern Conference has more pressure on them right now than Toronto. Toronto went all in this season on a guy they knew would be a free agent after one year, thinking they had a good enough team around. And they do. Don't get me wrong. They do. Kyle Lowry is a very nice complimentary piece. They bring in a guy like Gasol, pair him up with Ibaka. And by the way, those two played really well yesterday. It was their first real significant stretch together. They've got a good group around Kawhi Leonard but not good enough to beat Boston in a seven-game series, not good enough to beat Milwaukee, maybe not good enough to beat Philadelphia. Toronto hasn't done enough right now. If they don't get out of this round, they haven't done enough to make Kawhi want to re-sign with them in the offseason. In all likelihood, they need to get to the Eastern Conference Finals, and that may not be enough. Let's turn our attention to the other side. How about the Nuggets and the Blazers? Another game where... A team had a chance to take a 3-1 series lead, and they didn't? Tell you what, I think the series is over. I think that was Portland's last chance to win this series and move on. I think the Nuggets are going to win this thing. Denver now has home court advantage once again. Two of the last three games will be played at the Pepsi Center. The numbers are on Denver's side, and I'm not just talking about home court advantage. We'll get to that in a moment. Nikola Jokic was huge last night. Triple-double out of the big man. 
21 points, 12 rebounds, 11 assists from your center. That's going to win you a lot of ball games. Jamal Murray turned in a game-high 34 points. Damian Lillard with 28 to lead Portland, but that came on 9 of 22 shooting. Was not efficient. Here's why I believe this series is over, aside from the fact that Denver gets to play two of the last three at home to close out this series. Denver was 12-1 in the regular season in the second end of back-to-backs. That was best in the NBA this season. Denver was also 13-3 in one-possession games, games decided by three points or less. And who's the real closer on that team? Jokic is the best player, but is he a closer? It's a striking contrast from the Eastern Conference playoffs. Is Jamal Murray your closer? I mean, he's a good player. Is he an elite closer? No. And when you don't have that go-to score that you need a bucket, you know, Jokic is probably your closest option. And you're still 13-3 and in one possession games. That means you're doing something really, really right. Something unprecedented. We're in a weird paradox with this series. Because... Portland probably has the two best closers in the entire series, between Lillard and C.J. McCollum. But Denver is the team that knows how to close out games better than maybe anybody left in the playoffs. As a centered team, not just one player, one or two players. Tomorrow night is an absolute must-win for Portland. I don't see another path if they don't win tomorrow night. Tell you who else is in the same position, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Golden State Warriors. Both of them will play Game 4 tonight. The last time, at least before Friday, the last time Milwaukee won a playoff game in Boston? May 13th, 1987. The Bucks went more than 30 years without a playoff win in Boston. Tonight they have a chance to get two in four days. Here's the truth. If the Bucks win tonight, the series is over. No way Boston's coming back from a 3-1 deficit having to win twice in Milwaukee. Tonight is a must-win for the Boston Celtics. The good news for them, there's a chance they get Marcus Smart back, who suffered an oblique injury back on April 7th. Marcus Smart is the most valuable role player on this Boston team. Malcolm Brogdon, on the other hand, will not be in the lineup for Milwaukee tonight. He's their most valuable role player. On the Boston side of things, Kyrie Irving has had a great playoff series outside of Game 2. Really, no one on Boston's team had a good Game 2. But they need more out of guys like Tatum, Jalen Brown, guys that were playing big minutes in last year's playoffs that just haven't brought the same intensity this year. Terry Rozier would be another to fall in that category. The Celtics need Game 1 Horford to come back, the guy who was awesome defensively on Giannis. Giannis, meanwhile... Got to the line 22 times in Game 3 on Friday night. There are people who criticize the officiating. They say that the NBA wants Giannis to keep on moving, to get him through the postseason. I'm not buying into that. I don't believe that the NBA wants a small market like Milwaukee to advance past Boston. I don't believe the NBA officials are biased toward Giannis. I think that the Celtics do have more of a case to be upset with NBA officials more than the Houston Rockets do. But still, there is no collusion between NBA officials and the Milwaukee Bucks. I will say that the MVP race is going to be decided in this round of the playoffs. Giannis is going to clinch it. He's going to show why he deserves it over James Harden. He's doing it right now. And speaking of James Harden, what a night he had on Saturday. To his credit, he had a great game. He took advantage of the Splash Brothers' inability to make anything splash as the Rockets win a must-win. 
A 126-121 overtime victory, enough to keep the Rockets' postseason hopes alive. But now tonight, they're in the same situation. Another must win. They can't go down 3-1 to one as the series shifts back to Golden State. Steph Curry had his worst NBA playoff game of his career. Clay Thompson wasn't a whole heck of a lot better. Gotta believe that that's not going to happen again. Those two guys are going to bring it tonight. Kevin Durant's going to continue to do his thing. And James Harden is going to have to carry the Rockets. Just the way this series has gone, I think Golden State wins tonight. I think they go up 3-1, and they essentially clinch the series. So just like Kawhi Leonard, we have a couple of guys who are going to hit the free agent market this summer playing tonight. Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. If the Celtics lose in the conference semifinals, is that enough to make Kyrie Irving want to re-sign? Let me say this, losing to Milwaukee is no shame. There is no shame in losing to this Bucks team because they are really good. And through the regular season, they have been consistently the best team in the Eastern Conference. But with the expectations put on the Celtics entering this season, if they lose in this round, it is a disappointment. This season will go down as a disappointment. And I don't know if that entices Kyrie Irving to stay. And a year ago, I would have told you the only person you can't afford to lose from this Boston team is Jason Tatum. Secondly, Jalen Brown. Kyrie, it's okay if you deal him. Yeah, he's a great player, but we need to invest in this young core. If there's anything that this season has taught me as a Celtics fan is you need a guy like Kyrie Irving. You need that closer, that finisher, if you want to make a deep postseason run. And Tatum and Brown have underwhelmed. In these playoffs this season, I'm a little bit more okay with sending a young core over to New Orleans to get Anthony Davis, especially if that entices Kyrie to re-sign. What I'm hoping is that giving Kyrie Irving and Anthony Davis the chance to play on the same team will be enough to keep them both in Boston, because that's a team that absolutely will not underwhelm. I guarantee that, and that's what I'm hoping Boston does here in this offseason. Kevin Durant is a different story. Kevin Durant has accomplished about everything he can in Golden State. If he wants a few more rings and stick around. But if he really wants to prove he is the greatest player in basketball, maybe all time, he's not going to do that with the teammates that he's signed up with. Durant has done some remarkable things. He's accomplished so much during his career, especially in the last couple of years. But people write it off. They say, of course he's doing it. He joined a 73-win team. He's got all NBA teammates. He's got Draymond Green, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, DeMarcus Cousins. Of course he's accomplishing all this. It doesn't make him the greatest player of all time. And Durant, being as thin-skinned as he is, talented, albeit thin-skinned, is letting it get to him. For Kevin Durant's legacy in the eyes of the general NBA fan, he needs to leave Golden State and bring a franchise like the New York Knicks to the top and start making them a dynasty. That would cement his legacy as one of the greatest players of all time. At least put him in the conversation for being the greatest of all time. How is history going to remember Kevin Durant? Are they going to remember him as the guy with all the rings, all the accomplishments you could ask for in a career? But he did it because of the teammates that surrounded him. Or are they going to remember him the way we remember Michael Jordan? The way people are going to remember LeBron? I tell you what, this goes against the general NBA narrative, but I think Kevin Durant has more to gain by staying in Golden State 
than he does moving anywhere else. Kevin Durant and Tom Brady are in similar positions. They've accomplished so much. Title after title, among the greatest players of all time, but are they the greatest? That's the biggest question that people have about either of those two in their respective sports. Is Brady really the greatest quarterback ever, or is he a product of his coaching staff? Is Kevin Durant really the greatest ever, or is he a product of his teammates? Tom Brady? Doesn't matter what people think about him. He's got six Super Bowl rings. Kevin Durant? He's well on his way to six NBA titles if he stays where he is. The biggest difference between them, Brady's not concerned what the haters think. He lets his rings do the talking. Kevin Durant cares what the haters think. Kevin Durant has the chance to win title after title, end his career with how many NBA championship rings? How many could he really get if he stays with Golden State through the end of his career? But will he let the media get under his thin skin so badly that he's willing to give all that up just to go prove who he is or how good of a basketball player he is? If Tom Brady was as thin-skinned as Kevin Durant, he would have went and joined the Cleveland Browns and brought them to a few Super Bowls just to prove his legacy as the greatest player of all time, that his accomplishments don't begin and end with Bill Belichick. The downside for Durant, if he does go to an organization like the Knicks and he doesn't turn them into a dynasty, he doesn't get them to compete for an NBA Finals every year like LeBron was with Cleveland, then what? Then how's history going to remember him? The safe bet is stay where you are, keep winning the rings, and let history remember you for your titles. But I don't think he's going to do it. We know who Kevin Durant is, the guy with multiple burner Twitter accounts, because he can't handle the criticism. As talented as he is, he can't take the critics. And right now, that for more than anything else, especially if he does leave Golden State, his thin skin is what is going to be most memorable about him when it's all said and done. Not what he accomplished or the titles that he won, which is unfair to say because he's done some great things and he's one heck of a basketball player, generational talent. We're going to remember him as the guy that got run out of town because he felt so insecure he needed to prove himself by leaving a perennial title contender and trying to do it on his own. We owe you a timeout. This is the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. When we come back, I break down the Kentucky Derby and we preview Preakness with horse racing analyst Barry Abrams. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you Monday afternoon. Thanks for hanging out with me. This weekend, we saw something we've never seen before in the Kentucky Derby's 145-year history. The winner decided by disqualification. We're joined by ESPN horse racing analyst Barry Abrams. Barry, first and foremost, where does this compare for you in your history covering the Kentucky Derby? Well, it's not uh, unprecedented at all in this business. It happens every day at every track across the country. It's just unprecedented that it happened in the Kentucky Derby. And so I think the right call was made. It had to be a message sent that you can't just let riders have at it. And that's not what the jockey of maximum security was trying to do. He was not slicing and dicing like this was a NASCAR race. The horse just got spooked and veered out. The jockey, Luis Saez, was trying to correct him. But if the call had been allowed to stand, 
that sends a message that maybe the next guy could try it on purpose to do that, and you certainly can't send that message. Maximum security owner Gary West cited track conditions and overcrowding. He says that Churchill Downs is built more for 14 horses when the Derby featured 20. Does he have something to that claim, or is that just an owner being upset at the outcome? We don't really know what spooked maximum security. It could have been a noise or a camera flash on the infield or something. I think horses are far more perceptive about their environments than we are. I mean, let's be honest, Tanner. People can be oblivious sometimes. That's not really a news flash. But as Luis Saez very honestly said to the stewards, and you could hear it on the broadcast afterwards, he's a baby. And horses at this stage of their careers, by and large, are. I mean, this would be like asking a 10-year-old to stand on Lambeau Field before, right before a Packers game with a full crowd and walk nice and calmly and orderly from the 30-yard line to the end zone. Let me know how that goes, okay? So it's not a surprise that horses would be spooked. And look, they practice these things all week. It's called schooling. They go to the starting gate. They go through the paddock to get a familiarity with the surroundings. But the one thing for which you can't practice is 150,000 people. If you tried to pipe in noise like football teams do in dome stadiums, you might get every horse on the property freaking out, and then it would be mass chaos. So there's only so much practice you can do. Well, Barry, there's an appeal being filed by Gary West and the ownership crew for maximum security. Would that have any traction? Do they have any basis for filing an appeal? I mean, they can try, but, uh, you know, Gary and Mary West, God bless them, they have been guests on my podcast before, and they have basically restructured their approach to ownership to basically try to buy only the kinds of horses that can compete in the Kentucky Derby. That's the one thing that's avoided them. They've won just about everything else in this country in this sport that they could. So it's crushing to them. And so they're grasping, and I get it, but I don't think anything's going to change. This sort of thing happens all the time. And not only that, Tanner, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you want to go with this, but there are basically two different ways to interpret the international rule for disqualifications. There's one way in most of the rest of the world, and then there's a way in the United States and Canada. And the way it's interpreted here is that if any interference occurs, the offending horse is taken down. That's the way the rule is. In Europe and the rest of the world, it's if you think that maximum security would have won the race anyway, you leave it alone. But the, the foul here was so egregious and could have caused such an accident War of Will was coming right up behind maximum security. Their legs came very close to interlocking, and it could have been catastrophic. And though it was not the jockey's fault, not about that, but it happened, and this was the only result. Barry, tell me why they're refunding money to those who bet on maximum security. Because he crossed the line first, and I think it's really a show of good faith. But, uh, you know, that's certainly a, a creditable gesture, what I think matters more in the long term is transparency, that the Kentucky stewards, and look, I get it, referees in just about every stick and ball sport do not speak to the public after a game. So it's not a surprise that 
the uh, chief state steward here, Barbara Borden, wouldn't take any questions. She did make a statement. But for a sport that is very much in need of transparency and positive uh, goodwill after what happened at Santa Anita over the winter, etc., I think the uh, state steward taking questions and being more transparent would have been a better gesture than just refunding people's money. Barry, what about the early favorite, Omaha Beach? He was scratched on Wednesday. If people had already placed bets on him, is that money refunded also? I believe that money is refunded, yeah, because he scratched before the race. So, yeah, if you if you bet on him, you can. I, I'm 99.9% sure you get your money back for that. Well, I tell you what, Gary West also said maximum security will not run in Preakness. What went into that decision? Horses, Tanner, don't usually run anymore on two weeks rest they run four six eight weeks of rest so if you don't win the derby and have that pull of history chances are you're not going to run the preakness i think the only way other than what i just said that a horse would run the preakness is if you were pretty sure the horse wasn't going to be able to run a mile and a half in the belmont and therefore hey all right we'll run him on two weeks rest and then we'll give him a long rest after that it is very unusual to run three races in five weeks, which is what the Triple Crown is, after having the long campaign just to get to the Derby. So, no, it is absolutely not a surprise that Maximum Security would not run the Preakness. Very few of the Derby horses will, other than Country House. The only two that I've heard being even talked about are Code of Honor, who wound up finishing second after the DQ, and uh, War of Will, perhaps, would run the Preakness. But I haven't heard of any others. Well, Barry, lost in the aftermath is the fact that Country House did come away with the Kentucky Derby title. He opened up as a long shot to win this thing, and yet here he is. Just how big of an upset is this? Oh, it's an upset, but here's the thing. I mean, the best laid plans never work out in a race with 19 or 20 horses. You're not going to get the trip that you thought, and for most horses, that's a problem. In his case, it actually worked out great. Country House is a big closer. He comes from way out of it. But here, because of the traffic condition, he was actually in the middle of the pack, closer to the front than he would normally be in the first half of the race. So he didn't have as much to do to get to the front. So it worked out well for him. I also think he was one of the few who benefited from the track condition, the, not only it being wet, but the way the, uh, the track superintendent sealed the track, and then unsealed it right before the race, uh, worked to his benefit. And we said before that very few of these horses had run on a wet track before. Not that they couldn't do it, but we just didn't know. Certainly for Country House, it worked out brilliantly. Talk with Barry Abrams, ESPN horse racing analyst. Barry, Country House has already entered in Preakness. As long as he keeps winning, are we expecting to see him in all three Triple Crown races? Well, we'll see what happens in the Preakness. If he wins that, of course, he's going to go to the Belmont. My guess would be if he doesn't win, they probably wouldn't go to the Belmont. Because, again, big closers like him that come from way out of it don't typically win the Belmont, even though it's a really long race. And you would think that closers would want to save their energy through the first half of that marathon and then come on at the end. But that typically is not the way that race is run. So my guess is if he doesn't win the Preakness, he would not go on to the Belmont. Belmont's other horse, Tacitus, who ended up finishing pretty well in the Derby here, he was brought up to third after the DQ. Belmont has said, that's my mile-and-a-half Belmont horse. 
So he's not running the Preakness. You'll probably see him five weeks from now in the Belmont. Well, Barry, one horse we know won't compete at Preakness is Omaha Beach. Wednesday, he was scratched from the Kentucky Derby lineup with a breathing issue. Tell me about this issue. What is it that he's going through? Is it something that's easily treatable? Could we see him being a favorite again down the road? Oh, you'll absolutely see him again. This is a very minor issue. You have, in the back of your throat, you might not have known this, something called an epiglottis, which is that little flap of skin that prevents food from going down your air pipe and air from going down your gullet. And his just got entangled in a couple of flaps of skin. Very minor issue, but he has to have minor throat surgery to fix it and therefore cannot compete in the... uh, triple crown races but he'll be back by the summer i'm sure we'll see him either at saratoga or del mar in california now the interesting thing is when he would work out in the morning he had a workmate one of the other horses in richard mandela's stable whom omaha beach would beat routinely by four or five lengths and that workmate came back to win one of the undercard races at churchill downs this weekend so that tells you that Omaha Beach being that much better than that horse would give it, would have given all of these a big run for their money. Well, Barry, both Improbable and War of Will competed in Louisville this weekend. They both opened at 8-1 to one odds to win the Preakness. Do you expect both of them to compete? And if so, is that about where you'd place them odds-wise? I'm not sure about Improbable. That Bob Baffert loves Maryland. He doesn't love New York. So I would think if he was going to run improbable in either of them, he would run them in the he would run them in the Preakness, and the Preakness, even though it's only a sixteenth of a mile shorter than the Derby, is known to be a, a race that's won by horses on or close to the lead, horses with a bit more of a sprinting pedigree, and Omaha, rather improbable, is by a, a champion sprinter named City Zip. I would think Bob Baffert would run him there rather than New York. Uh, War of Will, Mark Cassie is not known for leaving horses in the barn, and I think he'll at least consider the Preakness. I would give it 50-50 there, probably a little better than 50-50 with improbable running the Preakness and then not running the Belmont. What are the course differences between Preakness and the Kentucky Derby? If you look on a Google Earth map at each of them, They look strikingly similar, about the same length, the turns look about the same, but if you ask the riders the difference between Pimlico Racecourse in Baltimore and Churchill Downs, they will tell you that the turns at Pimlico are tighter, and so you have to take them slower and more deliberately, and then it becomes a sprint down the straightaways. That's why sprinting pedigrees seem to run there. If you look again overhead, it doesn't make sense that way, but that's what the riders will tell you. And so horses that are on or near the lead do well in that race. Well, Barry, we're still waiting to find out the official Preakness field, but tell me about some of the horses that you're expecting to be there. There's a horse named Always Mining who run in this race, who didn't qualify for the Kentucky Derby. But he has won six in a row, albeit in lower-level stakes. But he's won six in a row, coming in with a lot of confidence. I would definitely take a look at him. A couple of other horses coming in off victories would be Owendale and Signalman. Or rather, Signalman comes in off a second, uh, third place. But these are horses that have credentials, but they were late-developing, and so they didn't earn enough overall points to make it into the Kentucky Derby. 
I do think the Derby was the better field, but there are definitely horses with credentials here. Another one is called Another Twist of Fate, who comes in off a couple of victories, one of which was on conventional dirt. He had spent most of his career in California running on man-made dirt, which runs more like grass than conventional dirt. And the question was, could he run on real dirt? Well, he won the Lexington Stakes at Keeneland last month on regular dirt, so he's definitely one to watch as well. So there'll be a, a field here to challenge Country House. Maybe not the Derby quality field, but horses that are coming in with some credentials and momentum. How about the jockeys that could be on display here in a couple of weeks? Well, the best jockeys always show up where the big money races are. It's a question of who will be riding which, and we're a little ways from that. I mean, you can sort of kind of judge improbable, probably will have either uh, Florent Giroux or Mike Smith. He, they are his go-to jockeys. Uh, Todd Pletcher will probably enter somebody that John Velasquez or Javier Castellano will ride. You know, these relationships are long-lasting, and in many cases, even when a jockey feels that a particular horse is better than another particular horse, if the horse he doesn't like is being trained by a guy with whom he has a long relationship, that often will rule the day to make sure that that jockey gets all the other good horses through the year that the trainer has. It's like any other business. It's about relationships. Well, Barry, last thing before I let you go, looking at the field right now, who could be the Preakness's country house? Who could be this year's long shot upset? There's a horse called Swainu coming in here who, you know, is probably going to be overlooked. Again, comes in with credentials, will be a dark horse. Don't know whether he can beat this field or not, but I think he's going to probably run better than his odds are going to be. He's probably going to be 20 or so to one. Uh, I think he's a little better than that. We'll see how he works out the next couple of weeks, what he looks like, and what chance he has. But I would take a look at Sueño as a, a long-shot possibility. Barry Abrams, ESPN horse racing analyst, kind enough to give us some time to recap the Derby and preview Preakness. Barry, as always, good talking to you. Appreciate the time. We'll have you on again here soon. Thanks so much, Tanner. Anytime. We'll take a time out when we come back. You know who really bolstered their odds this morning? The XFL. That and more coming up next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me in your Monday afternoon. Over the next segment, we're going to talk about why the Dolphins were right to go after Josh Rosen, what exactly they're trying to prove out in Arizona, plus one of the top two sport high school athletes just announced his college commitment. Where's he going to go? What sport is he going to play? All that and more is coming up in the next segment, but first, your SportsCenter update. Liverpool star Mohamed Salah will miss the Champions League semifinal against Barcelona due to a concussion, according to manager Jurgen Klopp. Elsewhere, the Red Sox have placed pitcher David Price on the injured list with elbow tendonitis. And finally, Michael Cohen, former attorney for President Donald Trump, began his three-year prison sentence in a federal penitentiary today. He's in a high-profile federal facility just outside of New York, along with Mike, the situation Sarantino from Jersey Shore. So the situation and Michael Cohen possibly be cellmates right now. This is the sports pen on ESPN-UP. We did not give that spot to the Royal Baby. Congratulations to the Dutch and the Duchess, I think is what they call them. I've never followed, I've never understood the obsession with the Royal Baby. 
Well, I tell you what, the XFL took a major step forward earlier this morning. The XFL and its reboot, trying to make it work. And I tell you what, they just bolstered their chances in a big way. They signed a major TV deal. Next year, during its inaugural season, the XFL can be found on six networks encompassing two families of stations, ESPN, ESPN2, ABC, Fox, Fox Sports 1, and Fox Sports 2. This is a major, major move in the right direction for a league that has got to be a little discouraged after seeing how the AEF didn't work out. They're playing the same schedule format as the AEF. They're going to play two Saturday games followed by two Sunday games. And it looked like the AAF had about as sturdy of a base as you could ask for, as sturdy of a plan for television and broadcast rights. And really, for a fledgling league, it was about as sturdy of a plan as you could ask for business-wise. So this is huge for Oliver Luck in the XFL. I didn't think that this would work out even before the AAF folded. But now that you're going to absorb players from the AAF, you've seen how the AAF didn't work, you know how to fix those problems, plus you've got one of the best TV deals, I think, honestly, in all of sports. I mean, Think about the other professional leagues that have their games airing on both ESPN's family networks and Fox's. The MLB? The NFL? So it's a huge step forward for the XFL, but there's still a lot of work to be done to ensure that they will even survive a full season. The AEF separated itself enough from football, just enough that people wanted to tune in. They maybe didn't care about it as much as they would the NFL, but people watch. I watched. I was a casual AEF fan. I didn't really have a team. And if you're hoping the XFL sticks, which I'm hoping it does, you got to be encouraged by a few things that they're noticing the AEF did wrong, and they're going to use that. They're going to learn from their mistakes. I'm hoping that one of those lessons learned is that you need to expand to the northern part of the country. Almost all teams were south of the Mason-Dixon line, the AEF. Only Salt Lake City was north of it. It really didn't give us fans up here in the north much to care about. I mean, we'd watch it because it was football on. We liked football year-round, but we didn't have an emotional investment because everybody's down there in the south. It's hard to care about a team from Orlando or from San Antonio when you're living in the upper peninsula of Michigan. The second XFL appears to be spread out throughout the country. You have local teams that you can root for and be a fan of. But I tell you what, the overlooked driving force behind this mammoth TV deal, something the XFL has already capitalized on that the AF failed to do, is sports gambling. Sports gambling may be the XFL's best friend if they want to make this happen. If you wanted to gamble on the Alliance of American Football, you could. And they had a great TV deal. Don't get me wrong. They had some great broadcasters in the booth. They struck a deal with CBS. But at the same point, how many AAF games were found on the Bleacher Report app? You had to stream the game from your smart TV. If you didn't have a smart TV or a Roku stick, you're probably out of luck. Quite a few games were streamed on the Bleacher Report app. And while American households are trending to an all-streaming service TV provider, you can do that through Hulu, I don't have cable at my place. I've got a Roku stick. That's not the norm yet. The Alliance was before its time by trying to make that happen. They lost way too much money. I should say they missed out on gaining too much money by streaming games on the Bleacher Report app. Things like that. Exclusive streaming services instead of cable TV. Instead of mainstream TV. Could you imagine if the NFL streamed a game exclusively on the Bleacher Report app? 
how much they would lose in television revenue, in gambling. The Alliance had a niche market, spring football, and the sports gambling that went with it. Because people were gambling on this, and it was bringing in revenue. And every time they streamed a game exclusively on a streaming service rather than mainstream TV, they isolated themselves from a large percentage of their viewership. Probably not more than half, but still large enough percent that you lose out on potential money being made. Sports gambling is becoming more popular and more legal around America. I'm from Iowa. A bill passed through the House and the Senate that would make sports gambling legal in Iowa. It's made its way to the governor's desk. Governor Reynolds is expected to sign it. Montana just legalized sports gambling. The XFL recognizes there's a niche for them. They're going to take full advantage of that niche, betting on spring football in order to make money needed to survive. They're going to do that 100%, not 70% like the AAF did. I don't know if the AAF invested 100% in sports gambling as a means to stay afloat, if that would have saved them. But they certainly cost themselves a lot of money. And the way things ended for the Alliance, I'm thinking they regret doing that. I tell you what, moving on here quick because I got a big fourth segment planned for us. The Arizona Cardinals and Josh Rosen. The saga continues. Josh Rosen is now the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. I'm thinking back to a conversation of mine I had with a friend from Florida, Miami Dolphins fan. I asked him, are you optimistic about this season? Because it looked like this was going to be a total tank year. You miss out on Teddy Bridgewater. Instead, you pick up Ryan Fitzpatrick. This looks like a total tank for Tua, tank for Trevor year. Now you suddenly have a quarterback that a lot of people think are going to pan out. Are you optimistic about this season? He said, well, a little bit. We have the quarterback. We just don't have a lot around him. Now with the teams I follow... I like it when those general managers know exactly what they're building. I'm sure a lot of you do as well. I don't think they know what they're building in Miami just yet. And to be honest with you, this might be a rare exception where that can breed optimism. I don't know that the Dolphins know what they're going to be this season, if this is a tank year, or if they feel like they can compete. But I do know the unique position they were in made them the perfect team to snap up Josh Rosen. Either them or Cincinnati. You could even throw Denver to a lesser extent in there as well. But here's why. You test Rosen out. Is he going to pan out to the NFL? We didn't see enough from his rookie season, but there's a lot of reason to believe that the talent is there, that he can translate to the NFL. If you're the Dolphins, you have nothing to lose this season. It's going to be a bad year anyway. Ryan Fitzpatrick is your starting quarterback. He's, what, 36 now? He's a journeyman quarterback that really hasn't proved that he's capable of taking over a franchise and being that franchise's quarterback. And besides that, there's not a lot of pieces around him. You knew it was going to be a tough year for Miami. You could tank for Tua or tank for Trevor, pick up your franchise quarterback in the draft this season, probably with a top-five pick. But now you get a quarterback that you really get to see what he's made of. Josh Rosen can't do anything in Miami but overexceed expectations. There's not a lot of expectations in Miami this year. If he does meet or exceed expectations, then they've got their quarterback of the future. And they're still going to be low enough in the draft that they can probably use that first-round pick on some other position that they really need to upgrade. If Rosen is truly a bust and he doesn't pan out in the NFL, he's had two years, albeit not a lot of pieces around him, but if he's not translating in his first couple of seasons... 
then you're still low on the draft board. You can snap up Tua or Trevor, presumably. Miami was in a unique position to get this done. And here's the best part. They get it done for a late second round pick. That's all they have to deal for this guy. A late second round pick to Arizona, 64th overall in the NFL draft. This was a perfect deal for Miami. The only other team that could have done it this beautifully would be Cincinnati because they're in a similar position. Is Andy Dalton going to lead us to the playoffs and lose in the first round again, prove he still has something left in the tank? Or do we need to tank for Trevor or tank for Tua? Denver, you could make the case, could be in that category. I'm not putting them there because they just picked up two quarterbacks in the offseason. They signed Flacco. They draft Drew Locke. They're not looking for Rosen. They're not tanking for Trevor or Tua, at least not yet. The Miami front office just flat out beat the Arizona front office on this one. And Steve Kime, general manager of the Arizona Cardinals, needs to stay out of his own way. He's a GM on the hot seat. He did the right thing, taking Kyler Murray number one overall. That was good. That was the right move. Problem is, anybody could have made that move. Nobody would have traded away the 10th overall pick in last year's draft for the 64th overall this year. At that point, just keep Rosen. Let him be the insurance policy if Murray doesn't work out or Murray gets hurt. You really think the upside of whoever you picked at number 64 is better than Rosen's? It's not like you couldn't afford to pay him. He's still on a rookie contract. He's on year two of his rookie deal. So last week... Cliff Kingsbury, the head coach, Steve Kime, the general manager, were both in the news with conflicting statements about Kyler Murray. One of them told the truth. The other did the right thing. You're telling, well, now, wait a minute. Isn't telling the truth the right thing to do? Not in this case. This is the one time where telling the truth is not the right thing to do. Steve Kime, the general manager, said, of course, Kyler Murray is going to start week one for us. He is our starting quarterback. Head coach Cliff Kingsbury said, we still need to work that out. We've still got training camp. We've still got practice. We've still got the preseason. A lot can change leading up to week one. Here's the truth. Both of them are correct. Kyler Murray is going to start week one. Steve Kime is absolutely right about that. He's wrong for telling this. Unprovoked. No one asked him. He just makes a statement. Why is the general manager making this statement? Going over the top of his first year head coach. He's saying that Kyler Murray is going to start week one. We all know that. We know that to be true. It's going to happen. Cliff Kingsbury is doing the right thing. Kingsbury is establishing a culture. He knows who he's going to start in week one. He knows that there's no way backup quarterback Brett Hundley is going to beat out Kyler Murray for the starting quarterback position. But you're setting an example for your locker room. Everything is earned. You're entitled to nothing. We draft this shiny Heisman winner out of Oklahoma. Doesn't mean anything. You've got to earn your spot just like everybody else. To me, that's the right thing to do. That's what a coach should be doing. We all know Kyler Murray is going to start week one. No way Brent Hundley is going to take that away from him. But Kingsbury is doing the right thing. Setting the tone, everybody earns their spot on my team. Well, I tell you what, let's switch to the college scene before we go to break. Maybe even the high school scene, you could call it. Because one of the best two-sport athletes of our generation just announced his commitment to play college football over baseball. Maybe the next Kyler Murray. He is the top-ranked pocket passer in America. He's a top-50 recruit overall. And he has just committed to play for the Clemson Tigers, the defending national champions, their fourth straight five-star recruit, and what's looking like it's going to be the top-ranked recruiting class. 
DJ Wuiana Lele has committed to the Clemson Tigers to play football. He listed his top three choices as Clemson, Oregon, and Mount San Antonio College. Now, he knew he wasn't going to go there. That was just a nod to how important that school is to his family. He had two uncles that went through that program. The choice came down to Oregon or to Clemson. And DJ cited his visit to Clemson, his meeting with Coach Sweeney and the players, as the reason why he committed to the Tigers. Because DJ Wuianalele is a man of faith. And he liked the Christian atmosphere, the faith culture that they established in Clemson. And that's what ultimately recruited him to play for the Tigers. Although, he could have played baseball at several schools as well. Not only has he thrown a football over 75 yards, he throws a 95-mile-an-hour fastball as well. He is a top-ranked baseball prospect as well as football. Things just keep getting better if you're a Clemson Tiger fan. Life just keeps on getting better for the Orange Bloods down there. With that, let's take our last time out. When we come back, we're going to go a little overtime today. We're going to cut into Will Kane a little bit. Sorry, Will. We've got some breaking news here in the Upper Peninsula on the high school basketball scene. Get some reaction inside next in Sports Pan on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me in your Monday afternoon. John Beckman, Westwood High School Athletic Director, will join me here in a couple of minutes. The breaking news out of the West End today, head boys basketball coach Chad Hewitt has resigned the position. We'll get some reaction from the Westwood staff and administration, and we'll reflect on some of Coach's finest moments during his tenure at the helm of the Westwood Hoops program, including a regional run at Petoskey and one of the most memorable district championships in Westwood history. That came at the buzzer last year against Ishpeming. That one's no good. Rebound to Larry. Out to Delangelo. Five seconds left. Gets in the corner. Beckman for the win. No good. Tip up by you. Oh, he got it. 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 Oh, man. Oh, man. Blake Hewitt for the win on the follow. The fans are storming the court. Westwood just won the district. Oh, we see something Amazing. A miracle at Nagani. Blake Hewitt is the hero. 54-53 Westwood. That's how it sounded here on ESPN-UP. Blake Froling with the call. And, of course, that moment very special for Coach. He got to share it with his son, Blake, the hero, in the 2018 district championship game as Westwood took down Ishpeming at the buzzer. And with that, let's welcome in Westwood Athletic Director John Beckman, kind enough to give us a few minutes to talk about the developing story that came out of the West End today. John, really appreciate you taking the time. If you could, tell me what went into this decision. Is this something the coach had been pondering for a while? What led up to it? Well, I certainly don't want to put uh, words into his mouth. Um, but, you know, he's, uh, he's got a full-time job outside of the school and uh, his family as well and all those things. And as you know, the boys' basketball season and all winter sports, it's, that's, a long, that's a long haul um, for somebody to uh, undertake. And, you know, even though he's been our head coach for the last five years, he's been a coach in our program for um, probably the better part of the last 15 
So um, I think it was just time for him to step back and uh, spend some more time uh, worrying about the things that are important to him and his family. Yeah, he had the opportunity to watch his son through high school, get the opportunity to coach Blake through his senior year. Tell me about some ways the coach has changed the program during his tenure here. What staple is he leaving on the Patriot Hoops program? Well, one of the things that he really brought to us was um, focus, intensity, and uh, put a put a huge focus on uh, defense. And uh, he was really good at that. There's not a kid that played for Chad Hewitt that did not give there um, all for him and he was able to get all of that out of kids Um, so you know his best attribute was to get every morsel every ounce of energy out of those kids on the basketball floor so there's no question he will be missed well john let's talk about the hiring process when will the search begin what are you looking for in a candidate to promote the westwood way well the search the search will begin, uh, you know, almost immediate, and uh, you know we'll just we'll see what uh, what kind of candidates uh, come to uh, come to the forefront. You know, I I, I don't want to speculate on any part of that, as you know, I'll be the one that uh, has to do all the interview process and has to go through all that. So I certainly don't want to speculate on any part of who that will be, but. Uh, We'll be looking for somebody that's going to have to fill some big shoes. Do you have a timetable or a goal set for yourself when you might like to have someone in place? Well, you know, it, it, it's got to go through the process. This is a, you know, it's a school district, and um, there's there's union things that have to be followed as well and all those things. So I would anticipate uh, before we get to the end of the school year that we will have found our uh, uh, found our next coach. John, before I let you go, what's the most memorable thing you can take away from Coach's tenure? You know, really, just about how much you cared about those kids. John Beckman, Westwood High School Athletic Director, kind enough to take some time to talk about the resignation of head boys basketball coach Chad Hewitt. John, as always, appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure we'll be talking more here in the coming weeks. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. With that, let's bring in somebody who's coached with Chad Hewitt for a number of years. That's Westwood varsity football coach Scott Sergila. He had Coach Hewitt as a junior varsity football coach and was his JV coach for the basketball program. Serge, appreciate you taking the time as always. You've known Coach for years. Tell me what he's like as a coach and as a human being. Well, I uh, <clears throat> I grew up with him. Um, he was a year behind me in school and uh um, you know, I'm going to talk about Chad as a person first. I think he's a very big-hearted, kind, cares about kids type of person. Um, and, you know, we talked yesterday, uh, you know, about him uh, resigning. And uh, and I get it. it it's, it's, you know, um, he's an, him and his wife are empty nesters now. And, um, you know, uh, Blake is heading up to Tech and, and uh, he has an opportunity to see his son, and you know it, it's it's tough. It's uh, it's the job he has, you know, that pays the bills. Uh, that's a tough position that he's in, and um, and then to come to here and not only coach basketball, but you add football on top of it. He helps us out with track, um, and it's it's a it's a big loss for our district. And uh, um, I could see though the. The, the toll it was taken on him and 
um, you know, it's it's hard to when you wear yourself thin like that. And uh, um, I'm I, more, you know, all due respect to him that he had to make that tough decision, and he's doing what's best for himself, his health, and his family. And uh, you know, so I commend him for that. And uh, you know, he's welcome around here anytime. I mean, to help us out or you know, be a super fan or uh, whatever he wants to do. And I, 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 I wish him well. And, um, but he's, he's a good guy. It's a, it's a big loss for our district, not only, um, you know, you have his son Blake leaving, who's a great leader in our <clears throat> senior class, uh, but his wife Sherry, who, you know, she supports athletics. She supports uh, not only basketball, but the football program and our track program. She helps us fundraise for basketball, helps us fundraise for football. And uh, so it, um, it, I don't know, it, uh, I, I, I'm sad to see him go. Has he confirmed to you if he intends to stay on your football staff or does his resignation encompass all sports he's a part of, football, basketball, and track? Uh, well, I don't know what's official, to be honest with you, but I believe um, he's looking to step away from all sports. Uh, that's what he told me yesterday. Um, he's going to finish out the season with track is what he told me. But um, So, you know, it's, uh, that's going to allow him some freedom. And, uh, you know, more power to him. Good for him. I, I got to say this. We, I don't think, I know I should say that we wouldn't have had the success that we've had as a football program if it weren't for Chad and the basketball program. And what I mean by that is it could have been really easy for him to be the guy that has been, you know, uh, been here and has said, you know, uh, is the way I do things and this is what's going to happen but he allowed me to come in and change some things as an athletic program and uh, we worked together really well and if it wasn't for him and I working together really well <clears throat> we wouldn't have had the success and it, it, he's very easy to work with he bought into everything that we were trying to do and um, you know from the uh, how we approach sports and the weightlifting aspect of it and um, the intensity of practices, everything. And uh, it, it could have been a lot harder on our program and, and me um, trying to come in and, and uh, keep that football program going or turn it around. So it, uh, he was a big, big help with that. And he's done a tremendous job with our basketball kids too. Well, Serge, you've spent a lot of time with Chad. You've coached with him for years. Your kids grew up together. What is Chad's biggest staple? What's his biggest mark that he's left on the Westwood Boys basketball program? I think he gets his kids to play hard. Um, He gives his kids some freedom. He gives his assistant coaches freedom. Um, You know, I've I've watched Luke Gregg grow as a coach on the bench this year. And, um, And with me... You know, I've come to him and say, hey, here's what I have. I know it's a little different than what you're used to, but I was thinking this might work. And, you know, yeah, let's do it. And uh, his, um, but the, the mark that he had is just uh, his impact on the kids. It, it um, You can throw regional titles, district titles, and those are great. But uh, his kids, they play hard for him. And um, boy, he holds them accountable. And it's, it's really nice to, and that's what I meant by that before, that when I come in and, you know, I'm trying to hold our kids accountable and I'm doing different things and, uh, you know, he echoes that. And uh, I thought he 
we complemented each other well um, from the football aspect of it and then going towards the bas- basketball aspect of it. So it, um, I wish him the best. It, uh, I'm proud of him for making a tough decision, and uh, I wish him and his family, they're good people, and um, uh, I wish him and his wife, Sherry, and, you know, Blake and Caitlin the, the absolute best. They deserve it. Serge, any moment with Chad, coaching-related, non-coaching-related, that's going to stick with you? One of your favorite memories with Coach? You know, it's he, you know, Chad. I, I, you know, I said earlier, he's got a good heart, but he's got a great sense of humor too. We're always, you know, uh, telling a few jokes, and you know, it's um, uh, he's a funny guy. He really is, and uh, uh, you know, I, I just, there's really nothing one time that stands out. I mean. You know, I enjoyed going down to, you know, we went to the regional finals and that down in uh, Petoskey, and uh, that was pretty cool. And, and uh, you know, to play in their nice little arena that they have, their gymnasium, and um, kind of a different setting. And, uh, you know, we battled. We didn't think we would make it very far that year, and uh, I think we were 8 and 12 maybe, 9 and 11, something like that. And, you know, the win the districts win a regional title and go to the quarterfinals. Uh, that, was, that was something special. It really was. And he's been with me on our runs, too, of, you know, in the playoffs and winning some big games and, uh, you know, things like that. So it's, it's been a fun ride with Chad. Westwood High School football coach Scott Sergula. He has coached with Chad Hewitt for many years. Chad announcing his retirement from high school boys basketball earlier this afternoon. And the search for the replacement at Westwood will start immediately. That'll do it for us on the Sports Pen this afternoon. We are going to talk to Chad, catch up with him, get his thoughts on the decision. That's going to come up later throughout the week. You heard John and Serge mention it's a busy time for him. He's got a full-time job outside the school. Certainly that's been keeping him busy, and we're going to work with him on that. But we will get it figured out and touch base with him later on in the week. That's it for us on the Sports Pen. Once again, I'm Tanner Hoops. Thanks for tuning in. If you missed any part of the show, it's available on demand in the on-demand section of our free mobile app you can get from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Until tomorrow, Tanner Hoops signing off from ESPN-UPWZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.